Welcome to the Sportsman's Voice Podcast, your inside connection to outdoor legislation. From the beltway to policy happening your way, we're covering it all. I'm your host, Fred Bird. Join us as we explore public land access, wildlife and fisheries management, Second Amendment rights, the triumphs that shape our nation, the sports we all love, and the stories that fuel our passion for the great outdoors. This is the Sportsman's Voice Podcast. Well, this is it, the final episode of 2023. It's been a fun few months kicking off the Sportsman's Voice podcast, the official podcast, the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. Folks, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, like I said, uh, final, final episode here, bonus episode, if you will. Keeping it fun. We're going to, uh, again, go back to NASC. Uh, like I told you in the last episode, we got so much great stuff out of there. Uh, going into the new year, we're going to bring you more shows, but uh, for this final uh, off-week publishing, as we head into, uh, we're just days away from all the magic, uh, Christmas holiday, New Year's, I hope you enjoy this one. We're going to uh, invite in Chef Josh Savenka, uh, Je- Chef Josh, is a friend of ours, he, uh, he was down doing demos on how to use knives properly, how to, how to cut up food. Um, you're going to hear more about that. Josh and I get into a, a really fun conversation, take some rabbit holes as far as our connectivity to our food, the motivations of new hunters coming into the space, the utilization of our harvest. He's going to talk about, you know, his work and, and, and stuff he does to teach new, new outdoors men and women. It's a fun one. I wish we had more time. Probably do it again at some point but a uh, real fun conversation there i love talking about food and you know who who doesn't then we're going to welcome in gabriella hoffman from the uh district of conservation podcast and the independent women's forum we'll tee up gabby after josh's conversation here with me but essentially uh gabby's going to get into her work uh, we're going to have a good conversation about conservation so uh Again, just like last week, no Sportsman's Voice roundup on this one here. Want to bring you straight to the conversations, you know, with the Christmas spirit and holidays in mind. Ho, 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 let's go. Getting out of the end of the the first true day of our NAS Summit. I'm joined now. It's a fun one. Chef Josh, Josh Zavenka. Good job. Is is joining us. Josh has has been... uh, Doing a lot of demos on on cutlery work and showing the people how to process any food, really, because you were you were working vegetables and, and, and everything. everything. Demo, showing people like cutting onions without making yourself cutting onions without making yourself you cry, know, and you know <laughs> you had the sous vide. Is that I say it right? Sous vide, sous vide going on the other day. So, uh, man, thanks so much for being here. Absolutely, it's an honor. I'm, um, you know, I'm I'm not just thrilled to be here, but it's uh, it's great to just hang out with such great people. Very like-minded group, uh-huh. very dedicated to conservation, dedicated to creating policy that, that protects that. And yeah, the, the, the spirit of the hunter is alive and well in this group. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, the audience is going to get on me about being redundant, but for our sake, for the first time talking, you know, it's, it's a really unique situation where you have, you know, people from different ideals and, and persuasions and none of that matters here yeah absolutely yeah because they're able to really like as we're recording this break bread have right. a couple of drinks 
talk about themselves, talk about their family yeah. and how important that is. And then it ties back into what they're passionate about. It and probably they probably yeah, humanizes absolutely. them. Absolutely. As, sh- as it should be. As it should be. And they wouldn't be here having those conversations and and thinking outside the box to, to you know, fix these problems that we have and, unless they were passionate. So talk a bit about, uh, well, obviously you, yeah. <laughs> but um, where you're at of who you represent and, and, you know, some of the skills that you bring and that you're, you're showing off this week. Oh, definitely. So that's a, that's a tall order. So mm-hmm. I'm the executive chef of a company that we built called Gastronomy Outdoors. Um, it's a sister company to Gastronomy Live Events. We're, we're state, we're actually stationed in San Antonio and we're right around the Texas Hill Country. Mm-hmm. Um, I built this company because what I wanted was I wanted to be a resource for people who wanted to really learn, um, learn to, to cook for themselves, Yeah, you know, uh, grew up, spent a lot of time on a German farm outside of uh, Shiner, Texas, um, a little German dairy farm. And we knew where our food came from. It wasn't, it, it was something that, that we just, we, we recognized as sustainability yep. before sustainability was a fad. Right. Sure. Sure. <laughs> it was just so, living. No, exactly. Yeah. It was called survival. Yeah. And, um, and so what ended up happening was, is after, you know, studying and going to school and really getting very deep into, uh, what food actually is to, to our species, it was something that I, I looked around and realized no one knows how to cook. No one knows, no one's spending that time actually learning what it means to feed themselves. And there's always going to be somebody there to offer comfort and convenience. And we're, we're, we're lazy creatures. We're going to yeah. take it. And after a while, when there's benefit to the people offering that, they're, you're, you're naturally going to fall into every bit of marketing. When you, um, I to interrupt, but there was a, a point there I thought was interesting. When you say people don't know how to cook, are you saying that we have lost the skill set and the, I guess, art and old ways of preparing food to eat it the way it, it should be or the way it used to be? Or like, are we just, like you said, kind of inherently lazy and, you know, you put that white tail on the ground, grab the back straps, grab the inner loins, and then burger yeah. the rest of it. Right. As it relates to the hunter, that's, that, that's a great segue into what we also do. But to answer your question, as it relates to the hunter, it's, it's something that I want them to, to know what it takes in order to kind of transcend the chili and the jerky and the sausage, right? That's very easy for hunters to do. Um, even easier than that is just to outsource it and send it to a processor. Awful. I much rather, yeah, I much rather have them learn what it means to break the animal down in the field safely, you know, being concerned about pathogens, being concerned about anything that could make them sick, um, you know, leaving a, Leaving a white tail and where I'm from in Texas, uh, throwing it in the back of a, a truck when it's warm out. Just, you know, hunting season sometimes can be pretty warm. Uh-huh. And then going back into town and making a couple of errands and then you go, okay, well now it's time to start cutting up this deer. Yeah. You're, you're, you're left with uh, a wasted life is how uh-huh. we, we really do position it. And uh, kind of back to our, our, what we were talking about, it, it is something that I want, I want to show the importance of, of the individual being sustainable, the importance of the individual knowing how to take care of themselves. That's really the overall wrap that, that we put on this because it is something that it, it, it may, maybe it's laziness. Like you said, maybe it's just a lack of knowing. Uh-huh. Um, I do know that there are people who benefit off of that. 
And, uh, you know, I'm not saying I don't go out to eat at restaurants. I am saying though, that I, I know what equity it takes. And I try to teach what equity it takes to put into your food system that you can, the ROI in that translates into you feeding your family and having the pride of being able to do so. And that's, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. And I think that there's something important there. And that's what, that's the bedrock of why and how we actually built this company. We just don't have to do it anymore. You know, that it's not out of necessity. It is, I think for some of us, it's a matter of a heritage and wanting to save uh, traditions and keep certain skill sets alive. And obviously over time you lose certain things, oh, but sure. you know, our, our, one of our last podcasts that we let out, uh, Darrell Smith, who we had on as a guest, we, he's out of uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And we were remarking that we're talking about food and, and the value system that's placed on that by, you know, airfinger quote, non-endemic, the new hunters that are coming in. And that's the value proposition for them. It's not so much having this uh, Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone experience in the wilderness. It's I want to feed myself and I want to do it uh, organically as, as much as organically you can. And what we got to was, you know, not very far in our past. Uh, World War II era, a little bit before that, there were no ice boxes. There were no refrigerators. You didn't have mass uh, food industrial complex that was mass produced. I mean, because of the war, they, it was a necessity. They had to. You got to pre- prepare this food. You got to freeze it. You got to get it overseas and feed yep. your troops and fight the war. But then all of a sudden, as many things after a war, you, you keep the tech that came with it. And now you impart that on the, the society. And then all of a sudden now... Now we're not having backyard gardens or, you know, community gardens. People start losing touch with the, the, the landscape around them, what goes into that, how to plant it. And now we have genetically modified food. And that sucks for a lot of us that care about this stuff. And the legacy seeds that used to yeah. turn over, they're gone. Or you're paying an zero amount of money. Right. Uh, so all of this to say we're not very far removed from when people used to do this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, two generations. Right. That's it. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of what I offer and a lot of what I do teach is, is kind of in the vein of nutritional anthropology and and really food history. Yeah. So what you're talking about is unbelievably accurate because we have these things that I, I call, I, I, I deem them hot points, hot points in our history that when this certain thing happened, be it a war, be it a, um, a wave of, of really, or even, even a wave of feminism, when the first and second wave of feminism came through, that completely changed the overall understanding of whose who's, uh, job is it to cook in the home. Mm. And what that did is, is, it, is it separated that task. And probably in some cases, rightfully so, it should have been a little bit more balanced. Maybe some, some would argue sure. that. However, traditionally, though, traditionally, it was, that was how it was. And so what ended up happening was, is that translated into other people cooking for you. And mm-hmm. then you tie that into the fact of um, wars. World War II was the highest mechanization of our food system in, in all of history. Mm-hmm. The creation of genetically modified, and genetically modified food is a very, it's a very loose term. Sure. As you say it, and it automatically is a buzzword for people who are looking to listen. You know what I mean? And um, genetically modified food is, is you, can, you can make a case that it's, it's not great. You know, it's done some horrible things. A lot of the people who are allergic to corn, a lot of the people who are allergic to uh, uh, dairy or even gluten, 
That's when I say that term, that's where I'm yeah. dialed in. Yes, on. exactly. And that that right there is the byproduct of us using using our food system in order for profit. And I don't I, I don't appreciate that. I, I see the problems in it. However, the word genetically modified to somebody with my discipline looks at it and actually says, oh, well, genetically modified means an overall uh, overall changing of of that of that fruit, uh, vegetable, that mm-hmm. whatever. That naturally happens in in nature. That's not lost on me, right? Um, but it also is a thing that without genetically modified food, we would not be able to feed our society. We would not be able to feed the human race because it's just not naturally built like that. Um, but it, I, I can I can separate myself and have those conversations of being like, yes, you can have two two things in your head at once. Two things can be true. Uh-huh. Genetically modified foods can be something that that um, that really have hurt our culture, but without it, we we wouldn't be where we are today. Like you, there's a high probability that you personally, because of the fact that there is more food readily available, so much so that we waste almost fifty percent. Well, that's a that's a big that's a big thing. When I when I start going down this line of thought, and I really like let my wheels spin, like how committed to this idea are you? Yeah. And I don't like thinking in the terms of like a paleo diet or anything like that, but I start, I start to go there and like, okay, so if I'm really committed to this, is that just, I'm eating the stuff that's indigenous to where I live, right? Because now I'm excluding every import, yeah. everything that's not natural to my environment in New Hampshire. Right. And that eliminates a whole lot of stuff. It does. It, and it, and it, and, oh, no, unbelievably does. Like getting in touch with the stuff that's there. Yes. Whole new education. Yes. And it is. And um, the other thing is, is that our um, our ecology where we live now, because uh, family farms and the uh, capability and the ability to to grow food to serve yourself is such on a micro scale. Right. Um, the family farms barely exist uh, where I am around South Texas. A hundred years, there was, uh, you know, a hundred family farms. Now there's like four family farms, and these are these are farms that are not just uh, not just committed to growing um, soy or or milo or corn. You know, uh, those those commodity crops. It is very much dedicated and centered on the fact of of we we have lost that we have lost that in our food system, and um, our our repayment or really our byproduct of it is that we outsource everything. And, and if you're in New Hampshire a hundred years ago, you could have easily pulled off what, what you're thinking of mm-hmm. eating off of the terroir, right? Eating off of within a hundred miles, right? You source your protein, you go out and get it yourself or you maybe barter with somebody right. and pay somebody. You grow your own vegetables, you make your own bread, you make your own cheese, you do the hard work, but we in air quotes are way too busy for that. So, this is uh, this is I wish I really wish we had more time. We, yeah. I mean, we're going to have some time here, yeah. but maybe we do another show here down the line. Yeah, sure. So uh, getting back down my mental rabbit holes here, I start looking. I, I own just under two and a half acres. I don't own a lot big land there. I don't have a lot of there's not a lot of space in southeast New Hampshire, but it's mine. And I start looking at again on this line of commitment. Okay, and I start thinking like, well, how the hell do you make flour? I know I need flour to make bread, but where does the flour come from? Yeah. And it comes from wheat. Okay, well, how do you process the wheat? What strain, what 
what species of wheat do I need? And then what do I need for space to make one loaf of bread? And what is chaff? And then heard the word chaff. Yeah. That? That so it, like something that, that we talk about that in trapping. So yeah. the chant. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sounds like something you need ointment for. So, yeah. So Google being the cool thing it is. So I started right. doing math. And I'm like, if I knock all those trees down, I could have enough bread for an entire year worth of wheat and then enough to sell and barter with. Yeah. And I look at my wife. I'm like, see all these trees here? They're going down. Yeah. And she's like, well, then what are you going to do with the, the trunks and all the damn rocks that are in the ground in New Hampshire because we're the granite sure. state? I'm like, yeah, we're going to build more rock walls in the yeah. woods. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's how far we are incapable of, of taking care of ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what, you, what you gave was an example of, of, a, of a modern human looking at a um, very ancient way of, yeah. of, of saying alive and to knock down those trees and then go, what am I going to do with this? Well, I can burn them or what I could do is I could use them for mushroom spores because your climate is perfect for growing yeah. mushrooms, especially during the spring, especially near the coat. Lots of mushrooms. And you can sit there and um, you can put mushroom spores, uh, you can put mycelium into logs and you can just start growing mushrooms. So now you what you consider may have been a waste or a very, very short amount of fuel just to fuel fire. Right. You're feeding your family while you're feeding your family. Ah, cool. And this was something that was was just, it was second nature. They knew it. They knew it because every resource was a resource. There was nothing wasted. It's And it's the same thing, kind of tie it back into hunting. What we do is we teach the importance of of not only giving honor to the animal. I've been hunting for forever. I mean, for a very long time. And I returned back to hunting and, you know, after I was an adult from hunting when I was young. And... And I, I, it's, it's something of a very spiritual situation for me, like even taking the life of an animal. Sure. And this is in, in my eyes, and I don't mean to be romantic about it, but in my eyes, it is, it is, uh, it's an ingredient. It's an ingredient to the entire process, you know, is actually giving, giving thanks about the animal. If, if it's a prayer or if it's just simply like, you know, walking over, there's, there's a, there's a German tradition. Have you ever hunted in Germany? No, I lived there, but never, yeah. never hunted. Well, there's a Jägermeisters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, uh, Gray Thornton, amazing, Gray and Renee Thornton, who run the uh, Wild Sheep Foundation. Uh, Renee is the chair for Women Hunt. Um, they're out of Bozeman, Montana. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal people. I have the honor of being their executive chef. Uh, he was telling me um, how they, how like when he's hunted is that when they, when they actually knock down the animal, they take something nearby that they would have eaten and they put it in their mouth. As, I've heard that. As a last meal. Yes. And I've, I've explained that to other people who are not hunters, and for some reason that seems barbaric. To me, I'm like, it's, it's a way of saying thank you. It's, and it's um, it, Yeah, and, it's, and it's, offering, it's offering a way of thanks, mm-hmm. but if you don't enjoy hunting, none of this makes sense. Right, of course. And it is, and kind of tying back to what we were talking about, it's an ingredient. It's something of utilizing every bit of the animal you can. And that's what we teach. We teach, hey, what are you going to do with the organs? What organs can you use? What organs can't you use? Uh, Are you going to use the call fat? Are you going to use the bones? And to listen to a modern day hunter who just simply straps out an animal, like in Texas we call it strapping out, like backstrap, tenderloins, leave the rest there because... Oh, no. Or, I mean, that's mostly for pigs because they're... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, oh yeah, you don't do that. Somewhat sense, but but I but I have so many people. I I I, I don't like that. I, I hate the idea of that. No matter what the animal is. However, 
you'll hear a lot of people that are just like, oh, well, I'm going to strap out the animal and then take the rest and send it off to the, to the processor. And well, what are you doing with the call fat? What are you doing with the liver? What are you doing with, with, you know, all these other organs that are highly usable? What, where's the heart going? Uh, I don't know. It was a lung shot. I still have the heart, but you know, I don't know what to do with it. So it goes in the gut pile. Why? 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 I mean, it feels gross. It does feel gross. And two things can be true at the same time. You can, you can have that inner dialogue with yourself and say, I'm taking an animal's life. I'm taking it away from the rest of its, uh, the rest of its kin. It's a, it's a violent death. Hopefully it's a quick one if I'm good enough at it. But the other thing is, is that we are the top of our food chain. No one, no one can deny that. Even though, even the most avid anti-hunter or the avid vegan, I respect both of them. But if you, but they're not going to sit there and say, no, we're not the top of our food chain. There's very few places in the world that you're right. not. That's exactly right. Like a jaguar chasing you in the Amazon. Or sure. However, two things can be right at the same time is that you can sit there and say, we are the top of our food chain. So that means we have to be good stewards uh-huh. of what we've been given. And as hunters, as conservationists, as people who understand the, uh, understand not only the lifestyle, but what it means, it's super important to, to cultivate that and work with organizations that, that help you do so. And tying back to what you were talking about, it is all about celebrating that through, through the process. What are you going to use? How are you going to use it? Chop down the wood. You don't just need to use it for mushrooms. You can, you can do multiple things with it. And it's, I know it's, it's just a, it's, it's fun and it feels somewhat cheesy that we look at it and we get all excited about it. And our grandparents sort of likes it. They're going, so really that was, uh, that was Darrell's point, right? When we were having this dialogue about this very thing about, um, he calls it, it it's a new term I heard, I've seen recently and he used it, food desert. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which doesn't really exist as much anymore. And so that was the food desert. And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the food desert was a, was a term to, to describe inner cities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that was very much a true thing. Yeah. However, a lot of those, and I'll, you know, there are going to be people who will hear the statement and might go, oh, well, that's not hundred percent true. I'm like, okay, well look at the data because now you can get anything delivered. Right. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, it, yes, there's not readily available produce. That was what, what they were doing. But now, you know, organizations like, you know, Uber Eats or whatever have offered the opportunity to, to supply produce, supply good, uh, healthy ingredients to you. And it's just, now it's up to the consumer on well enough, whether or not they're going to do so. And so the food desert thing is, I agree it's there, but that really, the food desert exists more now because of our growing the wrong things mm. in the right places in rural America um, is now centered around the fact that those food deserts are very much more in the rural because mm. you live 300 miles away mm. from the nearest city. Yeah, no grocery store. No grocery store. You're not getting Uber Eats to drop off, right. you know, rutabagas and broccoli for you so you can eat healthy. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. You get processed food, you freeze it. If, if you don't hunt, you're eating all processed food. Uh-huh. Like... That's that, that, that right there is, is, is how to really, uh, do some damage to your family and yourself. So Darrell was saying that, I think he was talking, he said he was talking to his grandfather and making a concerted effort to 
uh, be more healthy, more in tune, and you know, just saying all this stuff, which is, it's all valid and true and today. And at the crux of it was grandfather looked at him more or less was like, that's just eating. Yeah. You're not doing anything special. You know, we were doing this before. It was just, it was again, just survival. <laughs> we weren't taking pictures of ourselves while we were doing it. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And, and, you know, I, I, I get all that. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a part of our culture, but it's also, you know, I get excited about it. You know, you said earlier, you know, it's fun that like guys like us, we talk about this nerd out and, and get excited. And I think part of the excitement is, is the empowerment that comes from it. I mean, that yeah. comes from the knowledge, the knowledge that to pull this off, to take a deer, any animal, to process it, to have it, have that flesh, give it longevity and not just have to consume it or get it all away once for fear of spoiling. Right. To be able to work land and to have. Uh, vegetable matter and fruit and, and whatever other ingredients you, you did knock down a bunch of trees and grew wheat and made bread. Yeah. That's powerful because that's ownership and you're able to do all of that if you know how. You're not dependent on a supply chain line that three years ago we found out is fragile as all get out. Yes. And because we outsource everything in this country, we lose control and that is not power. It's not power. And, and that is... You're, you're, you, you hit it out of the park because for men and women like us, we are, we are driven by that idea of being recession proof, of being untouchable during those things. And it doesn't come from ego. What it does is it does come from that inner, it's, I, I relate it to the same thing. Why hunting right now uh, not just to what you were speaking about earlier, to new hunters looking for clean protein. Uh -huh. I look at towards that there is a yearning, especially in men, especially in young men, early 20s, maybe early 30s, um, who have this yearning. They have something inside of them that's like, that's like it's not just uh, watching the Netflix shows. It's not just you know going across blogs or seeing stuff on social media. There is something inside a man's soul that needs to be cultivated and stewarded. And it's lost when you are just constantly given everything. You're not pushed through any hardships. You're not pushed through anything that actually galvanizes you, gives, put, gives you a sharper edge. Mm -hmm. And you don't come out of it knowing that you made mistakes, but you also are bright enough that you fix those mistakes. And I know it's kind of a broader spectrum on a very finite little thing, mm -hmm. but it relates to something that is hard, like hunting. And we look for that as, as men. I, I don't like anything easy. Ask anybody, ask my wife, ask my kids, man. And, and it's, and it's because I need, not so much I need to conquer it, but it is something that it's, it's built inside of us to, to be, to, to, to be this own thing, be our own entity and keep our family close and keep it protected. You know, it's, um, we're built for it, man. Like physically and mentally, okay. we have been molded and shaped and and you know, whatever your belief system is mine is that our maker made us and has image and made us to handle some stuff we're squishy we're fragile when you fall off of 20 foot things yeah but otherwise when your feet are on the ground yeah you're able to do a whole lot and your gray matter between your ears allows you to physically yeah do that and the yearning you're talking about is it's just it's instinct yeah it's part of your your physical and mental makeup. And yeah, there is a, an, oh, a, a need for it. And then when everything's pacified with, like you said, the, the on-demand everything now, like that's just, 
I, I guess you could say it's emasculating, but I know it's not just to, to the men in our society, it's the ladies too, because oh, absolutely. the women run the household and traditions and, and yes. we're the gatherers. And then in some societies, we're the hunter gatherers. And, and so, I mean, it's not necessarily gender specific. We as human beings require this. Our teeth are built for this. Absolutely. Our bodies are built to do hard yeah. things. That's why we have, that's why we have a large amount as as a western society have a large amount of uh dental problems and mm-hmm. jaw problems weak jaws because we've been eating soft food yeah. ever um but you, you you touched on something especially about the um uh, uh, the female hunter and that's one thing that uh Renee Thornton and Gray Thornton have have done um amazing at is is especially Renee building something that is bringing bringing female hunters into in into this um not i don't like the word lifestyle when you're talking Uh i understand yeah that 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 feels cheap to me um life skill and we we all work together uh to bring them in and walk them through a course and teach them i mean you have seasoned hunters that have been hunting their whole life that don't know half of what these uh, 36 women have actually gone through and learned and I have the honor of being there on the latter half to like help them learn how to actually bring home their kill and cook it for their mm-hmm. family. As a woman, how? Oh my God, I, I I can have empathy for that because I yearn for that too. Mm-hmm. But that's to have that and then be able to like you're going over the the gender barrier on top of. It. What's cool about that is you know the the gals that are going through that program mm-hmm. and going through your school. You know, a few, maybe four years ago or so, there was a, a study done as far as demographics and, and who in the family that participates. It was more of an R3 study here when R3 was just becoming the hip word to say, right? Um, it's relevant completely yeah. today, but sure. nevertheless, the study bore out that you could have dad, granddad, whatever, hunt, and the kids may or may not come along and, and, and you have this this uh, lapsed hunter that you need to reactivate and all this in the R's. Yeah. But when mom did it yes. and brought the kids along, yes. you made lifelong participants yes. because mom made it happen. Because what it does is it offers a, um, a lot of people would say it's a juxtaposition between the, the, the violence and the masculinity that it requires. It does require a way to to take an animal's life, do the dirty work in order to do something that's that's really it's not even second nature for us because we just talked about how it's not, but it is something that is uh, truly unique to our species is cooking and providing for ourselves through what we hunt, cook, and eat. No other species cooks, right? Just don't. But to do that. From a female standpoint, and not just the breakthrough barriers of gender, that's not just it, but to have that natural instinct to be empathetic, to, to, to be a caretaker. I, I, I'll, I'll debate anybody who sits there and says that, that women, women aren't the better of, of our species mm-hmm. because they, pos- they, they, they require that. And my, my wife being the most amazing, compassionate person in the world, yep. I look up to that. I yearn, I yearn to I wish I had that. I wish I had that <laughs> because I'm so cynical, yeah, you know, yeah. he's not. And so, but to have that, but then to also be capable of, of violence 
because that's you're you're doing violence. Of course, yeah, yeah. And and to do that and be able to do something that's violent in order to do something that's also beautiful, it's it. Of course, people don't. It's it's for most people. It's a hard thing to reconcile. Oh, it is. It is. And and for for even hunters, even like I'll, I'll I'll hunt with good old boys down in Texas, and they'll sit there and there's like, man, you're too spiritual about this hunting. And I'm like, and you're not. And you're not. And you're missing. You're missing out. As you're describing all this, I'm thinking about my reaction to you know anytime I get behind a, a firearm and I pull the trigger or randomly my bow. I'm not a very big archer hunter, but anyway, I, I pretend. And I still think I don't get, I don't get hesitant in it as I've done this, you know, for 20 plus years now in my life. And I was a, I was a late starter too. Um, but I do, I think there's this momentary pause and most of it is disbelief. It is. That like, especially turkey hunting. I'm a, I'm a turkey junkie. Yeah. And most of the time I can't believe that what I did worked, first of all, even though I do it year after year and I'm very proficient at my, my craft. I still have this self-doubt. I'm like, holy crap, this worked. And as the safety comes off, I'm like, this is it. This is really happening. And I'm mystified by it every single time. Every time. I can't believe it. And I go pick them up, and it's like, I did it. Yeah. Like, I wasn't expecting it. That's, and that's what, I was, uh, that's what I was hinting to earlier, is giving that thanks. And being, yeah. once the adrenaline subsides, yeah. once, once you're sitting there going like, you take a couple deep breaths. I hunted with guys who've been hunting their whole life, older, older fellows who have a heart of gold, and they still tear up. Yeah. Just a little bit. And it, it, is, it is the exhaustion of that adrenaline. I get that. But that, that's what we were supposed to do, you know? And, um, and at, out at FDW Ranch out in Barksdale, that's where we conduct a lot of this, uh, all of this, really. And we bring hunters in from all over the country and Canada and, uh, you know, beyond. And uh, we walked them through. Tim Fallon has done an amazing job uh, building something that we're able to walk them through some really, really great stuff. Um, and uh, I don't know. It's just it's it's a it's a it's a remarkable thing to be a part of, and then to be on the fun side. Yeah. You know, how lucky, how fortunate. Yeah. And just hey, bring this home. They're like, don't make chili with it. And you're changing lives. I mean, that's I hate to be hyperbolic about it, but no. I mean, it's the truth. I, I really are. I'm honored to do that because if you can turn a hindquarter into, you know, instead of just having it turn into ground, you're making a quality a high green curry. Yeah. Or you're doing Moroccan food with a backstrap instead of just wrapping bacon around it. I a mean, lot of, a lot of decisions, a lot of uh, relationships over the eons are forged over food. And if you can create a quality culinary experience and sure. not just hamburger helper. Yeah. Holy smokes, you're doing something. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll leave you with this because it was something that I said tonight and I saw a bunch of lawmakers look at me and they went, okay, I see what you're saying. And if I can, if I can sway a room of lawmakers yeah. just to think about this, I, I, I think I've done my job. Um, but what it is is uh, what we always say is that the things that are broken with our society and our culture can be, can be fixed by actually listening to each other. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to do that, what better way of doing that than breaking bread? Together? Exactly. Because if we're going to break bread together, if you and I are, are properly eating, that means that we have our mouths shut and we're actually chewing. Fantastic. And what are we doing when our mouths Listening. Are we're listening. It's outstanding. And we drink wine. We break bread. We laugh. We argue. There's nothing wrong with having a, a, an argument about something, just as long as you're you know, not a jerk about it. And then at the end, I mean, that's, that's the whole point. Chef Josh. Yes. 
we need more time. Absolutely, man. It was an honor. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for, for making the time and for your skills on on uh, on demo here and, and entertaining uh, our guests. So thanks so much for what you do. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much to uh, Chef Josh there. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I certainly uh, enjoyed re-listening to it because it just, it just brings about so many fun ideas and, you know, it's, it's a bit of a departure from our, our standard uh, offering here on the airwaves. So uh, always fun to, uh, to take a break and then talk about some other things that are just as equally important to our community as, as a lot of the lawmaking and policy making goes. Next, Gabby Hoffman. Teeing her up. Got to spend a little time with her down at NASC. She's got her own podcast, the District of Conservation. I joke with her about being a social media star, but she really has done a good job putting herself out there, speaking on behalf of the sportsmen and women uh, in our community, uh, discussing conservation impacts and, and issues. And, and we're going to, you know, obviously get into some some funding talk here and, and understanding when, when you're talking to people outside of our community, how the funding mechanism works through PR dollars and, and Dingle Johnson and things of that nature. So um, not totally new ideas, but it's great to have her on here and, and, and hear her perspective. Um, and then, uh, you know, share it with some friends and family that, you know, you're, you're hanging out in the holidays and they don't understand you and don't understand how this all works. We'll tee them up right here. We got about half hour plus of good conversation here with Ms. Hoffman. So let's get into it. All right, we're rolling. And we continue to go here at the, the 20th NAS Summit, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. I'm joined by social media star, Gabby Hoffman. <laughs> don't call me a star. <laughs> Everyone, it, everywhere I look, there you are. And you're doing great stuff for, for the community and conservation. And you have a voice and you're, you're getting the ears of a policymaker. So it's, uh, it's great to have you here and, and working out a little time in the very busy schedule. Uh, tell the folks who you are, what you, who you represent, which organizations you're involved with, and, and, and the goals and aspirations of being here and uh, for your organizations. Well, I'm first and foremost excited to connect with you in person and record this podcast. It's really funny about social media and, and you know, perceptions in the real world. But yeah, I've been very animated about these issues for a long, long time. I followed CSF probably in my early days of policy work, and that's almost going on a decade or so. Yeah. But big fan of your guys' organization. I've had my hands in different pools across the years. Um, up until recently, I was a full-time freelancer doing a lot of outdoor writing, communications, et cetera. I'm still doing that, but I have a different capacity slightly, but I'm still able to do my podcast, uh, District of Conservation, um, and a few other projects on the side as well. But my primary focus now is with an organization called Independent Women's Forum. And I'm now their director for center, or director of our Center for Energy and Conservation. It's a mouthful. Uh -huh. But I've been tackling these issues with the organization in my fellowship. I've, I had a fellowship for about two and a half years, both as a visiting and senior fellow. And then my colleague who helmed our center earlier this year, when we launched in February, she left to go pursue some other opportunities. She encouraged me to continue her work, our work. And I stepped into the role recently, so that's what I've been doing um, most recently. And I'm trying to bring these sports, sportsmen's issues to the forefront uh, because women are now participating in these activities a lot more. Um, they're facilitating opportunities to go outdoors. They're taking their kids outdoors. They're spending, you know, taking the whole family, husbands, kids, 
all that, and even single women too. So women are now making important decisions across these set of issues, hunting, fishing, shooting sports, mm -hmm. and hopefully trapping too. Yeah. Because I know we don't want to forget the trappers because they have made a great point. You know, if they go first, everyone else follows. 100%. Incrementalism. We have to be very concerned about that. So I've always been a big champion of women in the outdoors. I myself am one. I started fishing, then I got into shooting sports, and most recently hunting. I've been hunting now officially, I would say, for about six years. And as we're recording this, I'm hopefully going to get a deer, hoping, hoping to get uh, some more deer this weekend back in Virginia. But awesome. trying to go outdoors as much as I can. I've traveled a lot over the country. I'm, I'm really fortunate to be able to meet with different people, hear their stories, tell their stories through other avenues I work with, in addition to Independent Women's Forum. Um, I have a video series called Conservation Nation. I got to even go to Alaska to film about some of the issues there. Did salmon fishing, saw grizzly bears. I've gone to, you know, nearby places, faraway places here in the United States. So I've been very fortunate to kind of have eyes and ears to kind of hidden conservation issues as well related to sportsmen's concerns and just kind of catalog it as best as I can. And I've had my podcast now, I think for five and a half years, give or take. So I, I do a lot. I write podcast, opinion, make policy work so much that I do. And, and it's fun to not just have to be narrowed down to one sure. a title. So I love having multiple titles, but I really... I'm excited for this expanded role that I have with IWF. Yeah. Right now, what are you working on? What are some of the big issues you're trying to bring uh, to, to the people you're working with? Right. So obviously energy, you guys somewhat talk about energy, you know, wanting to make sure um, you you factor in the costs. You know, there are no trade-offs or, or minimal trade-offs to, you know, certain harnessing of energy and how that impacts sportsmen's issues. We look to that as well and more so for the con from the consumer side if it's feasible to do things. But on the sportsman's side, I've been chiming in on a few things in terms of letters and, and writing some articles and blogs. So most recently, I would say of consequence, I wrote or was behind several letters, um, one of them being a letter in support of the bill to restore funding to hunters' education, shooting sports courses in K-12 through after the so-called Bipartisan Safer Communities Act yeah. funded it. Um, we found that out. I think a lot of us were very skeptical of that bill. Personally speaking, I was. And I knew, you know, when you when you bill something as, you know, bipartisan and it does contain a lot of gun control provisions, you have to unfortunately worry about unintended consequences. So for me, I anticipated something bad would come out of that, you know, before my work more formally with IWF. So when I saw that it was shortly implemented, they interpreted it, you know, to mean a dangerous weapon would be, you know, conventional rifles or archery or something of that nature. But I think a lot of us were like, oh. This will have ramifications down the chain. And we saw that it impacted, you know, hunter's education, archery, shooting sports. And, and that was going into the school year. I don't have kids, but I have a lot of friends who have kids. And I have nieces and nephews. But even as someone who doesn't have kids, I saw that would be very deleterious. Because a lot of kids in, in urban settings, if where this program is, that's the exposure they get to hunting and shooting sports. Sure. So I worked with our education folks in my organization to draft a letter in support of Mark Green's bill and uh, through a vertical that we have where we are able to weigh in on legislation called Independent Women's Voice. So we separate our work, you know, the education side, the forum side, and then the kind of more legislative arm, our voice side. So to make it, you know, kosher and everything. So through that vertical of our organization, we were able to send a letter around the time it was starting to circulate. And then just to see the bipartisan support, overwhelming bipartisan support. Yep. Uh, for that, I was very happy that I was able to kind of like make the connection through our organization and, and get that out there. And people, we were told, appreciated our weighing in on that, even if it's an issue our organization hasn't traditionally talked about. But I, I spoke to one of my colleagues on their podcast with some other 
you know, mothers on the program. The host is a mother and she brought on another lady from Wyoming who's phenomenal um, and, and says that they depend on these hunters education, shooting sports courses, especially mm. in these rural areas, too. And so that was one thing um, right before I took on the directorship that we worked on that I was really proud of. And more recently, I signed on to we, we helped amplify rather write a letter in support of um, the suppressor bill where the until we can, you know, repeal the two hundred dollar stamp. Um, I think most Second Amendment proponents, you know, kind of look to that as, as a long term goal. But in the interim, if you can't remove that stamp uh, from the NFA, uh, at least have those monies go towards Pittman-Robertson, 85 percent to them. And then I think it's 15 uh, percent to ATF. And so that seems like a reasonable bill um, to do that. And then, you know, obviously them streamlining the suppressor application process as well in the mix of that. So to streamline it further, because we've seen obviously that it, it's too long of wait time. So I think that's also going to be included in the legislation. And then more recently on the state side, we weighed in on the Ohio right to hunt and fish resolution. So we'll have our fingers out there with yeah. our voice vertical there. So I'm just keeping my eyes and ears open, you know, to weigh in more formally on this type of stuff. And on my podcast, separate from IWF, I am discussing these issues, general policy areas. I'm not, you know, advocating, you know, one way or another. I'll, I'll say like there are implications to this is why I personally wouldn't support this if it's something my organization doesn't follow or have me weigh on weigh in on excuse me um so just kind of like keeping up with things and and doing that um with relation to my new position but we'll probably weigh in on some more stuff in the coming years and i do a lot on the federal side too weighing in on certain rules that i think could have some implications to sportsmen you know on public lands or public waters um a lot of the topics that have t been touched upon here you know the right whale situation mm. making sure that recreational fishermen are not and women are not excluded uh, from access under the guise of, you know, protecting a whale. Nobody wants to see the right whale sure. decimated. So I've drawn attention to that a little bit with my work, uh, making sure, you know, multiple use that does still consider recreation. When you're talking about conservation proposals or remedies, you know, having that there. So keeping in line and then kind of, you know, following certain rules that may not be broadcasted out there so much as well. So to make sure that rulemaking is in accordance and friendly with hunters and anglers and other sportsmen and women, the lead tackle stuff is really concerning to me. It's always been a perennial issue. I remember growing up in California that those prohibitions were adopted very early on mm -hmm. compared to the rest of the country. So oh, yeah. seeing, seeing what California does and how that could be exported to other states, very concerning. And we have seen some prohibitions uh, through rulemaking from the Fish and Wildlife Service in eight uh, national wildlife refuges, including two in the more immediate area in Maryland and Virginia. So drawing awareness to that as well. And what are the implications? So I, I've written about it for our website. And also on uh, for townhall.com where I still freelance and also for my podcast. So those are kind of things I've focused on and it's always going to change each month. I think I'm going to write something later this month on the 50th anniversary of the ESA where the law should work as intended. But what is stopping it from, no. you know, no. working fully or or really weighing in conservation stakeholder stuff. And I think kind of my my M.O. for for this role and kind of my thinking overall is we have laws in the books. Some of them can be abused. Some of them don't work as intended. And we have to, you know, for certain laws and, and rules and regulation, it has to be welcoming of stakeholder input. And I'm very concerned overall without getting political. I don't want to get political on the show. Um, mm -hmm. But I think we see a shrugging of genuine stakeholder input. I know Mike Leonard talked about that they were not consulted by NOAA Fisheries. I've heard this from hunters and anglers from SCI and other organizations. They were not consulted about certain rules by Department of Interior. So I worry that while we do have folks 
interacting and trying to petition and make sure that our perspectives are heard, we don't have people so much on the inside who may necessarily agree with our policies. So that concerns me. And, and these shouldn't be partisan issues. These should be accepted by everyone. Um, but it seems like some of the people within some of these departments and agencies don't want to listen to the perspective or they're really influenced by preservationists. Mm -hmm. So that has me worried. So it's good that, you know, sporting groups, fishing, hunting groups are trying to make sure that their voices are heard, that they have a seat at the table, even in a very challenging terrain and landscape from Washington, D.C. We definitely need more voices and, and yours is a powerful one. And we're certainly glad it's out there. And, you know, with our organization, we, we have the ear of so many and we have that That's access, good. which is which is great on a number of the things you just listed off there. And um, but it, it amplifies it. Right. So when you're representing a, a, a group of folks and you have those numbers behind you and those voices and it just adds to it. And um, I was remarking earlier on the earlier part of a of one of the shows, you know, I highlighted one of the nonprofits and saying like they have 200,000 members roughly. And when their director of government affairs goes down to the Hill, he speaks and that's the power of that organization. It's not the fact that, you know, they're, they're working with a specific animal and habitat. That's all part of their mission. But legislatively, they represent 200,000 people, which is powerful, right? So they got to listen. It's even more powerful when those 200,000 people Accompany that one person as an organization, open their mouths and contribute. So it's vitally important that we have all these different organizations uh, working in tandem, not working against each other. If no one's going to stand up, at least someone's standing up for them to represent them. But really, we, we have a, and it's been documented, we have a terrible problem of advocating for ourselves as a sporting community. We always have. I don't know if it's just a fact that uh, we're hum humble people by nature if it's the fact that we don't have time because we're working class, most of us out there are trying to raise families or trying to be professionals and, you know, advance ourselves. And, you know, most of the stuff is, is hobbyist, you know, and not a lot of people have it as a, as a full-time way of life. They're not, you know, you and me, we're, we paid a lot of dues to get where we're at, right? So we don't have to get into the, the muck and mire of that, but, um, you know, anything worth doing is worth working hard and we've been there, but not everyone can do it. So, you look at it and say, ah, what's the cost benefit here? Do I, do I really put an effort behind this as an individual? Do I take time away from my family, time away from my work? For you and me, it's easy to say, yeah, well, of course, because it, it's what we do every day and we live it. But th there's, there's decisions there. And then it's, do I, how often are they doing it? How often do they get to go fishing? How often do they get to go hunting? Is this really worth the effort? Again, we can sit here and between you and me and be like, yeah, hell yeah, it's definitely worth it. But you got these are real questions with real people that have so much else going on, just like the people we work with. Indeed. Which makes it even harder for you and I to work with them and, and just grab their attention and say, what you're doing here has these ramifications. Or this one, this one's good. Get it through. Make it happen because it'll do all this great for all your people. Yeah, we have different issues. You know, there's federal gridlock. So it's really hard to get, mm. you know, things across. People don't view conservation as a priority, which right. is... A really wrong-headed view, in my opinion. I think it should be placed very high, but I understand. You know, it, it comes kind of as secondary or tertiary issue when you're having to worry about, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. Right. I hear a lot of people. You know, a lot of friends of mine, uh, some few recent acquaintances, have come to me and asked me. You know, I need jobs. Like, I don't know what to do. So I know, top of mind, this may not be a top issue for people, let's say, out of our sphere, but we can make it a very, you know, kind of relatable issue. And I think. You have, through the podcast, I've tried to do my little part, you know, all the people we've met and, and who come to these functions, like NASC, 
we're doing our little part to not only translate, you know, through our work and, and also as we live this lifestyle, why this is so important, why this is worth preserving and keeping and maintaining, but even getting new people into the fold. And I've been really fortunate to meet so many different kinds of people, a lot of women, um, people, you know, young kids and, and seasoned, you know, sportsmen and women who have far more knowledge than me and, and just getting their worldview and, and their perspective on things. People who grew up more urban or rural or suburban or not even from the United States and learn to love the conservation practices here. My family fled the former Soviet Union. My dad was an outdoorsman from a really early age. He loved to fish. That's how I learned how to do it. Mm. And so, you know, when I hear, you know, my father talk about how unique America's conservation model is. And I've, I've told him, you know, what the laws were because he, he wasn't sure what laws were because there are so many laws in the United States. But when I was telling him, you know, as I got more involved and learned the ropes of, you know, what are the funding mechanisms, what laws ensure, you know, conservation is made possible. And he's like, yeah, we didn't have this where I came from because it was very wealthy people who had connections to the Soviet mm -hmm. Bulletbureau who could get a license. Or they said there were licenses readily available, but very few people could obtain those, even if they were supposedly publicly available. But he said that it's so unusual that this kind of model exists here, but it's worth protecting and sharing and, you know, understanding what true conservation is and not, you know, trying to aspire to, let's say, a preservationist, radical preservationist model, which we have to do, like you said, in terms of making it relatable. I think a lot of people love to use the term conservation. They're not interpreting the meaning correctly. And I no. don't mean this as a way to begrudge people. It's... Some some may be well-intended in saying that, but there's so many different shades of environmentalism. You know, we we pride ourselves in, in practicing and in encouraging true conservation. And then you have people, like I said, who may mean well. Some of them may not mean well, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And and they're preservationists because they view, you know, hunters and anglers as an obstacle, even though we are the primary funders, including shooting sports enthusiasts as well, who fund 60 to 80% in totality of conservation funding in the country since 1937. And so they don't like that. And then they think we're despoilers. There was, we were talking before recording that there's a new study out there propagated by some scientists, I think one from Cornell and a few other institutions, that blame hunters for biodiversity. Yeah, loss. that one just come out. And, and when you hear that as a conservationist, you think you can't, you can't help but shrug when you hear that because you're like, we've helped restore, cumulatively, our forebears have helped us, you know, in the early 19th century to restore species that are readily available, plentiful today. Why would we want to do the same and then have near, you know, extinction? For certain, you know, widely accepted, widely viewable species today, that would be terrible. It would be un-American in a sense as well, too, to, to have to go back and revert back to that really kind of unfettered market game system that yeah. was in place before we had wildlife agencies, before we called on, you know, before we were like, we need to be accountable to ourselves. So we have Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson as a result. So it was us. It wasn't government dictating to us exactly right. that it was like, it wasn't us calling for them to regulate us in that fashion like you, you typically view regulation. It's one of the few exceptions of regulations working well and why Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson are very popular even to this day because it's not your typical tax with, with excise taxes. Um, so we wanted to be accountable. And then we have these other interests who are very powerful. And unfortunately, they have a lot more funding. They have the narrative. They have allies in media, unfortunately. Although we are starting to compete with them a little more. But they have very powerful lawyers who will sue and sue and sue and try to kick us off or try to restrict access under the guise of expanding public lands access or conserving a certain percentage of waters and lands and doesn't account for what are some of the, the trade-offs that come with some mm -hmm. of these designations that are supposed to be conservation, but they're not. And so I think we are starting to do better. Um, in addition to you know my day-to-day -day stuff, I'm also on the board of the Professional Outdoor Media Association, 
uh, poem. I've been a, a member since 2018. I was lucky to win an award for conservation on grizzly coverage. And it's really helped me grow as an outdoor communicator. And we have had this discussion in our organization many, many years. You know, how do we captivate people? How do we tell our story? And even in non-endemic outdoor media, in, in the mainstream where I've been able to print as well and, and have, you know, multiple bylines and, and you know, have the, the opportunity to be published because that doesn't happen to everyone. And, and um, when you are able to get your byline in very notable papers, it's a, it's a huge honor. So I, I'm very fortunate that I'm able to do that and translate our language and our message to non-traditional audiences. And I hope others can also break through and do that as well. Um, I don't want to be just the lone person doing that, mm. you know, breaking into Wall Street Journal and talking about this or, you know, other types of publications where this conversation needs to be had because you have people writing about these issues who have no proximity, not even a little teensy bit. Like they they largely have not gone to the field or they may start to shadow a little bit, you know, like fork to field. Great. It's good that they've got a little taste of it, but they're not going into the field. They're not sitting in the stand or the blind. They're not going on a fishing boat and understanding why people wake up so early to pursue deer, to go fish for red drum to do whatever, you know, to our heart's desire or to travel across the country out west to to target elk or, you know, to target, uh, to go on a trout hike, you know, here in the Shenandoah area in Virginia where I live. Were you in on the uh, director's panel this morning? I was. That I, that I was the moderator on? Yes. Mm-hmm. So there was a point in there where a uh, director for New York uh, remarked about hiring a market person to really, we were talking about communicating the mission and Communicating PR uh, and what that, how that funding mechanism does for all on the bad command, on the, on the few. And I, I didn't want to put her on the spot and I wasn't trying to be controversial, but I thought my question to her was, well, oh, when you're hiring this, and I didn't, maybe when I said requirement was probably too heavy, but I wanted to make it a consideration that when you're hiring a marketer to promote the department in New York, have they hunted? Have they fished? Have they shot guns to understand what they're putting out there? And she was very quick to cut me off. And say, Absolutely not. I want the best marketer, best marketer as well. I, I guess I understand that. But my point was, again, not to play gotcha, but to, there's an emphasis on that. This You need to know what you're speaking about when you're promoting this stuff. You just can't, you can't fake it because no. we'll smell it real quick and flush it out. And even more so, the, the, like we're talking about, the non-endemics, that middle 80, 85% that we're trying to get to, you feed them bad information, they're already getting bad information. Indeed. We can't perpetuate that from our end. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's important. And I, I would like to recommend the different wildlife agencies. They can work with someone like me wherever appropriate, you know, from um, outside of my work day-to-day duties, you know, just as a writer, award-winning writer, whatever capacity. But they have to tap into... I wouldn't say like we're in, I don't want to be viewed as an influencer because I try not to do that. It, you know, social media, the algorithm's so hard to, you know, nefangle and, and kind of uh, play with these days. It's, it's distorted for a lot of things. We do, our content unfortunately gets a lot of criticism, sure. but it's, it's not even just that. I just think the social media platforms, Instagram in particular, which I used to love and I still love, but it's, it's lost its identity. And it's, it's really hard to now, you know, gauge influencer marketing, I think is on its way down. But Strategic Agreed. partnerships, however, if the agencies were to partner like some with someone like me or someone who's up and coming or maybe they're a adult onset hunter or perhaps they're a lifelong angler or someone who really just loves to be outdoors and they're interested and open minded with you know, learning about new types of style of fishing. So I grew up bait cast and spin cast fishing and then I picked up fly rod fishing maybe seven, eight years ago, give or take. 
Um, and I love it. Like I love all styles. And so whatever, you know, mode that someone likes or if their experience is, is uh, since they were young or maybe they started with a different activity and then they morphed into being more well-rounded, I think the agency should look to us. You're not going to really spend that much money if you're looking in terms of a partnership. Um, but it's, it's good cross-promotion. There are lots of different features that can highlight cross-promotion. Like, for instance, I could highlight Virginia's unique offerings if I wanted to or someone else like me could do it as well. And I think they just have to look to see, like, you know, work with natural partners. Um, it could be a media person. It could be, like I said, a young family. It could be an influencer. It could be someone who writes documents. Um, maybe they're a professional working in, let's say, a corporate job. But on the weekends, they love to go fish or they love to go hunt. You know, someone with a big presence, but it doesn't have to be all macro influencers. You can have micro influencers and people who are, you know, offering a unique bent. But um, it you're right. It is important to have someone who at least understands or maybe is open-minded or maybe is a condition for employment you can get them to the field at least like yeah. some training so that they can know what they're talking about. The process is so mechanical and at a very primitive level, we are able to connect as human beings through our stories. We've been doing it since we figured out how to talk or communicate by grunts and pounding our chest. That's how we relate with each other. That's what separates us from the great apes and separates us from all the other critters on the landscape is our self-awareness and our ability to harken back to a history. Our, I mentioned it earlier, our, our inability to communicate our story hurts us. So it is valuable when they do team up with, uh, you know, whatever, non-influence or whatever, someone that knows what they're talking about. I actually prefer the non-endemic stories of people that, you know, the, the emergent hunter that figured this stuff out in their early twenties or thirties, there's value and there's power in that, that testimony. And like, oh, well, if they can do it, maybe I can. Cause you know, a lot of people are prideful or they feel embarrassed or ashamed. They just kind of sit back and they're like, well, I'm too old for this or I'm too far gone. It's like, not at all. And you can, you can motivate so many people with just a story. We have to be better. That's why I do a lot of this, even though we're policy heavy on this show, it is, there's still storytelling. And back to your point about using the word conservation. That is also part of our storytelling. And I think about the Princess Bride and think <laughs> about uh, the Montoya saying, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means because it gets bastardized. The, you know, the Jack, the Jack Hannah's wrong because he was a true conservationist. He understood the value of, of, of hunting and, and what that means in conservation. But there's other personalities, Discovery Channel, Nat Geo, that will constantly use the word conservation in place of preservation and it is marketed itself and and confused the general audience so when they hear conservation they think glass ball around this koala bear and you're never going to touch it kind of thing and it and it really it's it's you're 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 hearing conservation but the true meaning is preservation we and i've been saying this for years have must communicate that difference and tell folks in, in our own community, especially, start there and then go out. That word has to mean something different to people from now on because we use it as, as using the resource, conserving it so that we need to continue to use it to strike balance. If we put things in little biospheres and glass bowls and just look at them, you're not conserving anything, and it only goes, seeks to uh, harm. And it also restricts public access too, because 100%. We, we've talked about this um, before and, and you guys have done a great job highlighting this, the nuances of, let's say, certain monument designations or, or designations for public lands, which we should definitely be open for. And, and I 
I'm a public land defender and I want public land to be utilized, conserved, and, and maintained. But sometimes we see these conditions for establishing, mm. let's say, a monument, which I hate that they're being teed up to be just carte blanche for national parks. A national park is beautiful, should be unique. Doesn't mean that these monuments are not beautiful nor unique, but when you see certain administrations use them just specifically for that and then off limits for everything, that is not healthy and that's not a wise use of the Antiquities Act. But these these designations bar on you know a national park if if it's a monument and anything below that in terms of the hierarchy of public lands designations a monument has to respect wildlife management decisions and you guys have done a great job highlighting what happens when the designations come maybe there's not enough consulting or stakeholder input but the the thing is like yeah we're conserving you know a million acres in this area and that has been historically open to hunting fishing but the state wildlife agencies, Arizona is one example. Utah has said this as well. But Arizona, um, kind of in my study of this issue, has said this is where sportsmen have sometimes lost out on opportunities because the designation does not consider, you know, trout management or hunting management whatsoever. And when that happens, that is not good for us. That's a net negative. And so we have to be very careful. We have to demand that multiple uses and also these activities or access has to respect wildlife management, which is at the heart of conservation. Um, and I think more and more people, as, as long as we do storytelling and convey the differences, I think they will start to come around. I want to be optimistic that people are coming around. Um, and, and let's say personally speaking, when I'm posting, let's say something I've harvested, you know, whether it's a deer or I catch a fish, I'm not just like posting a gripping grin, which is great, but I have an explanation. If it's something that I was, you know, trying to intently like be aware of my surroundings and want to have that full spectrum experience, so I hope when I go deer hunting um, this upcoming Saturday, I could have something try to wax poetic. And even though like I'm an outdoor writer, it's very hard for me to be poetic. I try to be, you know, matter of factly to the point, you know, I don't want to embellish things too much. You know, um, a little embellishment is OK about, you know, the surroundings, you know, your attitude, whatever. But I think people want something that's matter of factly and to the point and not me like inventing sure. something about that. So I'll, I'll create like a long caption if it like when I got my first deer three years ago, I wrote a long thing explaining like I'm very proud of this. I used an AR platform, but I'm not going to let this deer go to waste. I'm going to process it. I'm going to field dress it. And I did like I didn't record me, you know, taking the guts out or things like that. But there is footage of me, you know, grinding some of the the leaner meat, you know, to make for sausage or patties or what have you um, or ground beef or ground venison rather. Um, so like I, I was able to do the process and I explained it without having to show like all the gory details. We don't have to show every single detail, but people can trust me when I'm saying that I did the whole process beyond just taking the shot that I did spot and stock um, for the deer with some assistance, of course. But, you know, doing the thing full circle and not just taking the shot, I think people will understand, even if they're intimidated by the platform used or they see, like, how could you take this gorgeous animal? And then you explain, like, I'm not taking everything. I bought a license. I got the training. I have hunter's education under my background. I'm not taking more than I'm allowed to take. You know, so when you explain that in your narrative or your social media post, even with you smiling in a grip and grin, I know there's always controversy about should you post a grip and grin? I think that's a silly debate. If someone is proud, it's ethical, legal. Why not? You know, and then you can explain, of course, that the the harvest was meaningful. Um, so I think as long as you elaborate more and you you could enhance it with, let's say, storytelling video wise or podcast or, you know, bring someone who helped you get to that goal of a species to that you obtained. Um, I think people like that. And so it's just a matter of us doing that and then getting the newbies, like you said, the adult onset hunters who had no proximity to the outdoors. Like for me, I was already interested because of my family background. We loved eating weird cuts of meat from mm -hmm. Eastern Europe. That's kind of a thing uh, in my household and in my family. And so, you know, we were always exposed to exotic meat, like bear meat infused with like sausage or something of that nature. So I always liked 
you know, kind of, I wouldn't say odd, but like unique cuts of meat or unique types of meat. So I already was kind of in there, but I just didn't have the opportunity to go hunting in California. It wasn't advertised and they're struggling today with marketing with certain decisions they've made. But but that aside, but for me, so fishing was the gateway activity for me. And I think there's a lot of fishermen, fisherwomen, um, and even shooting sports enthusiasts. I, I was talking to someone recently, like, how do you get that pipeline of Second Amendment supporters, gun owners to like hunting and understand Pittman Robertson? Because as we've mentioned here and some others have you know alluded to, um, we see people take efforts. There was a Republican Build a Return Act, which I vehemently disagreed with. Mm-hmm. I think it opens a can of worms that we don't want to go down. Um, the Pittman-Robertson Act, as everyone knows, if if the firearms industry thought it was a bad thing, they would have opposed it. But they don't see it as an infringement. So if they don't see it as an infringement to your Second Amendment rights, how is it an infringement? I don't see where it'll infringe. Where it does get dicey is when they propose these additions. Because everyone has agreed, like we talked about just not long ago, that we wanted to tax ourselves. These were reasonable rates to tax on manufacturers. And even if you don't, you know, if you remove it, the consumer is unfortunately not going to see that price go down. It doesn't lead to price reductions. What incentive mm. do manufacturers, especially with guns being in demand now, well, what incentive do they have to lower prices? They're not going to because right. so many people are actively purchasing guns for self-defense purposes, hunting, what have you. It's all market demand. That's where the prices are. So when, when people understand it's not, you know, um, a sin tax, like what California is attempting mm-hmm. to do or, you know, what Connecticut attempted to do, then they can be like, yeah, this makes sense. You know, it's not an income tax or, you know, another tax that is very cost prohibitive. It's a tax that is incurred on manufacturers and it goes to conservation. And those monies are largely stewarded very well. Um, but when you have, let's say, the Return Act uh, from the right, you see on the left, uh, them taking notions from the Return Act and saying, you know what? We like no. this idea, even though we don't agree with the premise, with the Second Amendment, we think bloodlust, you know, explains why, you know, hunters have an outsized influence role. Their words, not mine. Um, there was a New York Times post about this. So they said, we like this, but in the reverse, uh, because it can give us a, a perspective or give us a platform to advocate for us in divorcing the firearms industry, divorcing hunting from these management decisions or from. And, and every time pipeline. we ask someone to get a, a kayak stand or something, what happens? Holy hell breaks it. No, no, you can't do that. Well, I, who who's going to do it? And that's the distinction on this. And it's a very, I, I, I hate to make it so simplistic, but it's a very simple distinction. Mm-hmm. We asked for it. Yes. And you're demanding it. Mm-hmm. You know, when you do the, the when you're, when you're doing really the syntax. Well. That's, it's really that simple. And when we're having these conversations with either side, mm-hmm. that's the distinction. Like, look, you haven't thought this through. And it's because you may not know. Now I'm going to tell you. Now you know. Mm-hmm. In 10 seconds, now you know. I, I hate to like render it down like that, but I mean, it's, it's, that's it. Exactly. And the replacement, for what the Return Act was proposing, it doesn't make any sense with the political climate we're in with uh, a Biden administration is not going to approve um, taking re- or reverting those monies from oil and gas royalties. They're not for oil and gas development much. Uh, they're trying their best to stop it, um, whatever everyone thinks about oil and gas. But there's no way you can replenish it kind of like a LWCF, like what LWCF with offshore royalties, you know, going into land and water conservation fund. I think the proposal was to say, like, we'll recoup for the loss of, like, half a billion dollars, $600 billion with oil and offshore royalties. And I'm like, offshore is not happening. So it makes no sense in their argument. Like, that was very poorly thought out, uh, given the dynamics at play, you know, with politics right now. So we would have lost if this would have passed, and I hope it doesn't come back uh, from the dead. But we would lose, I think it was $1.6 billion this year, past year was hauled. Yeah. And then it would be 800 so like half, 
that that's not that's not good. And yeah. then then you would give the opening to preservationists, anti-hunters, anti-anglers to come in and say, okay, we're going to replenish it this way, or we're going to you know appropriate some sort of other fund. You but know, will they? This. That's the thing. Maybe not. They're pretty uncommitted. They want everyone else to do it for them, right? Until, until they, they get full control. Maybe. Yeah, it's just of government. It's a it's paper tiger, I feel like. They're they're real good at, at ballyhooing and, and, and creating controversy. But when you put it back on, I'm like, all right, step up. Well, I'm not going to do it. Right. Well, no kidding. They'll probably want, like, the preservationist groups that sue often, the NRDCs of the world, CBDs, Earth yeah. Justice. They want to wait till they sue right. the government. And then that could trigger, you know, yeah. some regulatory reform where Pim and Robertson gets abolished, heaven forbid. But where they could... Or they could try to do rulemaking, although there have been court decisions that say that regulatory agencies cannot create rules. That's only Congress's jurisdiction. So let's say if preservationists were to gain a majority in Congress, um, they could, heaven forbid, you know, advocate for a repeal. But we won't see that because I think we're such a divided country. So conservation still has an edge, I think, even politically across both political lines, you know, Republican, Democrat. Um, so we won't see that. But people are trying to make the argument from both the right and the left to say that Pittman-Robertson is unconstitutional or Pittman-Robertson is so egregious and dangerous and inviting bloodlust. So we have to, you know, challenge that narrative from both sides, unfortunately. Well, I mean, and, and you look at this 200-plus folks here this week and, and why we're here. And again, I, I've said it multiple times this week. What we do, our community transcends the, the labels that we self-designate. And that's the attitude we need to have. And that's the attitude that needs to be brought to Washington and every state capital. And I still say... If you're trying to get reelected, if you're trying to get elected, the fact that you don't engage the sporting community because this we so disengaged. we yeah. are the ultimate bridge for both sides and everything in between because we have proven and we were proven today that we can all be together, coexist and focus on the things that matter, not get caught up in the the foolishness that's that comes through on the radio and the TV and, and press media and even uh, podcast to an extent. It's, things can get done. Focus on the stuff that can get done, and all the rest of it doesn't matter. And we, as a community, can do it. We're we're small. Uh, well, the hunting the hunting community, the 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 angling community is huge. The sports shooting community is huge. So our powers combined, holy smokes, we can get stuff done. And and the legislators who engage with us get a lot of stuff done. And they can educate their other colleagues as to what the hell's going on. Yeah, and it should be a good way to relax and cool down you know hunting and fishing are great activities shootings everyone when you try something when you try these activities you get even the most perhaps apprehensive person i've seen people convert you know on guns it's over because you see that it's safe yeah. you're in a you're in a reasonable environment nobody's recklessly handling firearms or if you're fishing it's not boring that's kind of the stereotype. like oh you have to wait so many hours until you catch a catch a fish or until you get a bite you know that that's part of it unfortunately but it can be very exciting if you're on a boat or if you're Let's say, you know, hiking and, and trying to target trout in a national park or, you know, somewhere outside of a national park, wherever. Um, there, I think that's how you can. I always say the outdoors brings people together. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you come from, how you vote, what you look like, whatever. It is the most welcoming place. Naturally, we don't need to have. You don't even ask the question. No. Just show up. Yeah, just show up and people will welcome you. Yeah. I think what people don't typically like is if you're like, you know, being hostile and mean, you know, that's not welcome. That's an old, it's an old yeah. meme of yeah. the, the FUD hunter yeah. that. We, they're dying out. Yeah. So and don't have to worry about that as much. anymore. Thankfully, yes. Yeah. No, but it, it is a welcoming place. And I would love to see more people from urban, maybe non-traditional or not, you know, perceived to be consumptive right. in our activities to come and hunt and experience. They'll learn, you know, kind of self-reliance and the independence that comes with it and the, and the the freedom to be able to pursue things. And then obviously in the confines of, you know, 
slot limits and and creel limits and and harvest and the licensing system and where all that goes to. And I think when you show people that, or even you show like a subsidiary effect of that, like a bear den study, I may be able oh, yeah. to, I may get to do that sometime in the future. I've, I've been told finally I may get my opportunity, but like even something like that and you explain, you know, how can you like, you know, harvest cute cuddly bears and even with this bear den study and you learn Pim and Robertson funds these bear den studies or like elk rehabilitation efforts or, you know, other types of interesting, likable stuff. Because I remember when I think it was New Mexico's game department earlier this year, they put out an ad, apply to be a bear hugger, bear cub hugger or something of that mm. nature. And they got a lot of people who don't like hunting very yeah. excited about that. And then maybe it opened the door to, I hope, a handful of people learning about PR and Dingle Johnson, if they got to dig even deeper about the fishing side. But like stuff like that, I think, can even transcend sometimes the more difficult stuff. Um, and then we hook them in through that, yep. through those means. But when they learn, like, wow, because of people purchasing firearms yeah. and licenses. As long as the agencies are communicating that. Yes. And that's, uh, again, we hearkening back to the, our panelists this morning was something well, we hammered home. I thought we did, is that that story uh, needs to be told. That story should be in every hunting digest that they hand out at Hunter Education. You open the cover, boom, there it is. This is how it works. This is how your your participation works and does all this so you can go out there and do it. I know a lot of them do, but not everyone that like get on the same page and make put that in the print. Right. And even one up that, uh, a point I want to make, you know, as we move along through the podcast, I think also state tourism agencies, if there's an opportunity, we were talking about this in Virginia, how we could utilize it a little more through our outdoor recreation, I think, um, outfits that we have there, that we're not marketing Virginia's or maybe some other and insert state, you know, outdoor offerings are not being marketed as well because we've seen Florida does a great job of marketing. You see out west, they market, you know, go elk hunting, go fishing for trout in one of these rivers. Um, certain states need to do better. And I think them partnering with the tourism bureau of each state could also maybe kind of shed some misconceptions about these activities, show that they're great. And then, you know, you can have like a call to action or like some other factor with like, you know, support con these activities support conservation and therefore they support Virginia's economy or insert mm -hmm. state's economy. Yep. Um, and then you could also put like a cool factoid to be like these states received, you know, this this amount of money, millions, billions of dollars, you know, through PR or something, you know, kind of like to get people and hook them in in that respect. But I think partnering with the tourism bureaus could be another creative way. Yeah, of course. For us to bring. Especially for states like the states I live in and, and that surround me that rely on so much ecotourism. Right. Whether it's from sp the sporting uh, community or el otherwise, but you still have a story to tell. And those people that come up to watch moose lick the salt off the side of the road, you know, they're there because because of our little community. Gabby, we, we got to wrap here because um, we got to get to <laughs> the evening. Imagine... All the 40 minutes has flown by. I and you're having fun. It does. Yeah. I appreciate <laughs> your energy and, and what you bring to the the program here. We'll uh, surely do it again in a longer form. I would form. Love to do it again, and, yes. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming in, and, and um, I hope you enjoy the rest of NASC. I hope you're getting everything you want out of it and more, right. and um, I'll see you downstairs. See you downstairs. Thank you, Fred. All right, you bet. Thanks. Thanks so much to Gabby uh, for her time, for that conversation. And again, the chef, Josh, for his time. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Like I said uh, in the beginning, trying to keep things light and enjoyable. You know, this is a, this is a fun one to have on while you're cooking. Uh, those holiday meals or cookies or whatever you're doing, play it back for, like I said, in the, in the middle there, friends and family that may not understand what it is that we do as, as hunters, as fishermen, as uh, recreational shooters, sportsmen, and, you know, Give them some sound bites from this. Why is it important? What the 
the impact we have as a community uh, for everybody. That's that's really that's really the show, and I hope you enjoyed it. Last one. That's it for twenty twenty three. We launched this in September. It's been really well received. The success of this project is made possible by you guys, the listeners. So thanks for those who have tuned in, who have downloaded, who have shared. Uh, we encourage you to continue to do the same thing. You're with like-minded folks or folks that need an education and want to know about some of this stuff. You know, share the link with them over the over the holidays. Send it to them and, you know, open their minds or you know, at least give them some information. And, you know, a little downtime over the holidays is a, is a nice time to have those conversations. And it's a departure from the, um, the standard stuff that brings our families closer together uh, over some of these meals. I'm kidding, of course, but uh, it's a nice reprieve from uh, your standard uh, political ballyhoo at the, uh, the family dinner table there. So, again, thanks so much for the support. Over the last three months, we will kick it into high gear. As always, going into the new year in 2024, our legislative sessions open in earnest. We will be uh, redlining, man, out straight. All the states will start to come in. There's so much stuff going on throughout the country uh, at the federal level. I will tell you, before we close this out in 2023, I'll give you something to ponder. You know, it's no secret that the Hill was pretty jammed up this year, especially after the, the summer recess there. Some historical stuff happened, which caused a log jam. Things didn't get done that, you know, certainly we would have liked to have seen cross the finish line. The American people would have liked to have seen get over um, CRs passed and kind of move some things down the, down the line here, as it were, kicking, kicking some cans. But... Of the 23 pieces of legislation that, that were passed and heading to the president's desk, CSF led the way on 10% of those. So roughly a little more than that. But we had two bills get over the finish line and signed. One signed into law. And as we sit here at this recording, one is on the president's desk. Um, Breaking news. All right, folks, we do have breaking news as it concerns the Duckstat Modernization Act. President Biden has signed that into law. So right before uh, the new year, um, chalk it up for another CSF win and a win for sportsmen as well. I'm going to read directly from the press release sent out by our CSF comms team. President Biden signs uh, CSC leader Senator Bozeman, Representative Graves, Duck Stamp Modernization Act into law. On December 19th, President Biden signed Senate Bill 788, the Duck Stamp, Mo Duck Stamp Modernization Act into law, delivering a significant victory for CSF and waterfowl hunters across the nation. CSF extends our appreciation to Congressional Sportsmen's Caucus leaders, co-chairs, Senators Bozeman and Senator Manchin, CSC Vice Chair Senator Roger Marshall and Angus King, as well as CSC Vice Chair Rep Garrett Graves 
and CSC member Representative Mike Thompson for spearheading this legislation. The quick enactment of the Duck Stamp Modernization Act is a result of CSF's ability to advocate for sportsmen and women across the nation. Two weeks ago, the House of Representatives cleared Senateville 788-403-20 after the Senate passed the bill unanimously in July, a sign of widespread support for efforts to modernize and improve the experiences of hunters across the nation. Now that the Duck Stamp Modernization Act is law, CSF is already at work to ensure that this legislation will be implemented in a timely manner, particularly in advance of the 24-25 waterfowl hunting seasons to allow hunters to take advantage of this victory. Quote, at a time when there have been few bills signed into law, CSF is glad to see the leadership of the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus work collaboratively to secure an the enactment of this important bill for sportsmen and women across the country, said CSF President and CEO Jeff Crane. The strong votes in Congress and the enactment of this legislation only further demonstrates that our sporting traditions remain an area of bipartisan agreement, and CSF is proud to work alongside the CSC to promote the unmatched bipartisan support of our sporting tradition, end quote. The Duck Stamp Modernization Act will simplify the federal duck stamp process by allowing hunters to have an electronic duck stamp on their smartphone for the entirety of the hunting season. Prior to the enactment, the Duck Stamp Modernization Act, oh, of the Duck Stamp Modernization Act, when a hunter purchased an electronic federal duck stamp, e-stamp, the e-stamp was only valid for a period of 45 days to allow for the actual stamp to be mailed. Once the actual stamp was received, hunters were required to have a signed actual stamp on their possession while hunting. However, this legislation will remove the 45-day validation period and make the electronic stamp valid for the entirety of the hunting season. To ensure continuity and integrity of the Federal Duck Stamp Art Contest, a long-standing tradition of waterfowlers, S-788 will ensure that purchasers purchasers of the e-stamp still receive an actual stamp in the mail. Specifically, the legislation will provide that actual stamps will be mailed to purchasers from March 10th to June 30th. CSF will now shift to working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to ensure this legislation is implemented in a timely manner. So, there you have it. Another win right before the end of 2023. Job well done all around. Again, thanks to everybody involved from our CSC to our staff leadership uh, on up to the president's office for signing that into law and simplifying uh, a very needed opportunity for waterfowlers. That was your breaking news. Continuing on. The Protecting Hunting Heritage and Education Act, that was signed into law. And then very recently here, the modernization uh the duck stamp modernization act uh passed and is headed to the president's desk or is on the president's desk desk expect that to be signed uh two big wins in a year where not a whole lot got done and those are sportsmen's issues and csf very much so tip of the spear led the way was in those those offices or walking the halls working with our partners and, and, and being a voice for sportsmen and women on the Hill. 
Uh, you saw our our director of federal policy, Taylor Smith, uh, back in the fall, announcing um, the the win there with the Protecting Hunting Heritage and Education Act. Again, when you're over the holidays and people are asking, "What's CSF?" and you know, "What all do they do?" Here you go, right here. Uh, 10% of the legislation, uh, federal bills that got, that got caught uh, over the finish line, that was us and uh, got that done. So um, we look forward to celebrating more wins in the next year. But um, until we get to that point, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy and safe, healthy New Year. That's it. That's a wrap. That's a wrap on this show. That's a wrap on the year. We'll see you all on the other side. Thanks so much for being a part of our organization of supporting CSF. Thanks for having us along during your day with this program. Be well, be kind, and uh, see you next year. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Sportsman's Voice podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, your support is crucial, and you can help us out right now. By leaving a review, filling in those five stars where available, sharing this episode with friends and family, and engaging with us socially. CSF can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and X, formerly known as Twitter. Together, we can protect the outdoor sports we love and continue to keep you informed wherever you are. That's it for this week. Until next time, see you later.